0: So hear the word of God, from Joshua 12, 1 8. These are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the eastern Jordan plain. One king was Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon and ruled half of Gilead, From Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, from the middle of that river, even as far as the river Jabbok, which is the border of the Ammonites. And the eastern Jordan plain from the Sea of Chinneroth, which is the Sea of Galilee. As far as the Sea of Ereba, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea. The road to Beth-Jeshemoth, and southward below the slopes of Pisgah. The other king was Og, king of Bashan, and his territory, who was of the remnant of the giants, who dwelt at Ashtaroth and at Adria, and reigned over Mount Hermon, over Selka, over all Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites and over half of Gilead, to the border of Sion, king of Heshwa. These Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel, had conquered And Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. And these are the kings of the country, which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan, on the west, from Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, as far as Mount Halak, and the ascent to Seir which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. The mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the south. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Thus far there is the reading of God's holy inerrant word, and may he bring his blessing to us. Sometimes when we are reading chapters like this, we are going to a list of names, and that's all it is to us, is a list of names. But there's importance to everything that uh, we find in God's Word, and it's inspired Word. And there's a lot that we will normally skip over because we just don't understand the history or the significance uh, of uh, these sections. But uh, Joshua is a book about God fulfilling his promise to give to his people the inheritance that he spoke to, to Abraham. And and God is the focus of all of this, even what we are reading here today. In fact, we're going to bring it right down to the whole issue of Jesus, who is the King of Kings, and, and understand his rule and his subduing of the earth and the subduing of all things, in order to bring forth the kingdom of God on earth. Chapter 12 is the conclusion of the second major section of Joshua. There are four major sections. Uh, chapters 1 to 5 was all about Israel's entrance into the land of Canaan. Chapter 6 to 12 uh, was focused on all the major battles that Israel went through to conquer the kingdoms within Canaan. And in chapters 13 up to chapter 22 is Israel receiving their inheritance. And then chapters 23 and 24, respecting that call to holiness and to being the kingdom of God given to Israel. And here in chapter 12, we can see very quickly that there's two divisions within this chapter. Verses 1 to 6 are about the conquests that happened under Moses and the two kings that were conquered so that the east of Jordan River could be given to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. And in verses 7 down to verse 23 are the 31 kings that were conquered under Joshua. And they're all on the western side of the Jordan River. It's interesting with preparing for this and just doing some research most of the commentators really didn't see anything about this chapter worth mentioning. They very quickly skipped over it. But I want us to contemplate, why is this chapter so important? I mean, we are reading of the conquering of 33 kings within the space of probably 30 years. Think about that. 33 kingdoms brought to an end within 30 years. I did a little research. How many of you know the number of empires and nations that have disappeared in the 20th century alone? I want you to think about that. Empires and nations that are no more. Prussian, the Russian Empire, the Austria-Hungarian, the Ottoman, United Arab Republic, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, Tibet, South Vietnam, East Germany, Soviet Union, British Empire, the French Empire, the Dutch Empire, the Belgium Empire, the Portuguese Empire, the Mandarin China Empire, the Japanese Empire. All of these are gone. Now you might say, well, some of those nations just became other nations. That's right, with different governance, different rules, different kingdoms, if you will. They've all transitioned within the last 100 years. And it brings us to understand, even as it does for this time, I mean, for, for 450, maybe to 500 years, all of these 33 kingdoms grew up, prospered and are no more. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. What is the one kingdom that still endures? You, you, you ask, why is this chapter so important? Because God is showing to us that there is no kingdom on earth that can ever or will ever rival his. He will bring them all to nothing. My friends, that is to be encouraging. When we look at such a chapter, we need to understand Israel's place. Understand why was God giving them this land? Why was God uh, uprooting over 33 kingdoms? There's still some kingdoms that have yet to be conquered in formal sense. The the Philistine kingdom is still going to be there up until uh, David's time. Why is God giving Israel this land? Well you need to understand that Israel was not simply to be a nation among nations. Israel's purpose was not to represent a nation of people that Israel's purpose was to represent God's kingdom. That's, that's why he was giving them this land, that within all of the pagan, idolatrous kingdoms of the world. There would be the light and testimony of the kingdom of God to all of the nations of the world. Israel was to be that representation. You heard me say this before, congregation. But now there is a new representation. And it's not replacement theology. The church has not replaced Israel. The church is the fulfillment of it. Under the kingship of Jesus Christ. That this is the kingdom of God. That is to be a light to the nations of the world. For them to know that there is a kingdom to come. That will subdue all other kingdoms. So that the kingdom of God alone. Will reign and rule for all eternity. Why is this chapter so important? Because God is showing He is conquering the nations for the sake of his kingdom. It's here for us in shadows, in prophecy, in promise. Israel didn't fully grasp or lay hold of all that they were supposed to be. Her prophets, her priests and kings. Why did God institute all of that? within the realm of Israel why did god give them uh, all of these priests and send all of the prophets and raise up all of the kings because again there they were to be shadows and prophecy and promise of the greater king the greater prophet the greater priest whom they all represented and that is jesus the lord himself jesus christ the great prophet the Moses was the next greatest, but Jesus far surpassed Moses. And everyone was looking for the prophet to come. When you read in John chapter 1, and the Pharisees and scribes come to Elijah, and they say, who are you? Are you the Christ? And they say, no. Well, are you the prophet? The one that Deuteronomy 18 proclaimed would come. They're both one and the same, the Messiah, the the prophet. You know, they they still didn't grasp all of that. But Jesus is the great prophet. We heard this morning, the one who alone is able to reveal to us the truth and glory and grace of God. He's the great high priest. And as Hebrews 8 says, he, he far surpasses the whole of the priesthood of Moses and Aaron and all their descendants. We sang of that in Psalm 99. But Jesus far surpassed them. I like how Hebrews 8 talks about him as the great high priest and the minister, the liturgist of the great heavenly sanctuary, faithfully ministering in all things to the holiness and glory of God. And of course we know Jesus is the true king, the one and only Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And and why is it, again, important that we not only understand what this chapter is about, but look beyond these things and see Christ through it. It's important because Israel failed to be that holy nation. They failed to uphold the rule of God and the holiness of God before the other nations of the world. They failed many times over. It's very interesting. We're we're getting in around 1,100, sorry, uh, 1,300 years before the time of Christ and when Joshua ends. And then you get all these judges and you just see this up and down roller coaster of Israel's failing. They failed to be that holy nation. Her prophets, her priests, her kings, all failed to uphold the integrity of God's kingdom. You read 1 Samuel and you read about Eli's sons and what they did so sacrilegious against the temple of God that represented Christ in all of his mercies to his people. Priesthood failed. The prophets, they had more false prophets that they listened to than any prophet of God. (laughs) You get to Elijah's time and Elijah thinking he's a—he's the only prophet left. Well, there were a few others, Obadiah and a, a few others in his generation. But how does that compare to the 450 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth that he had to fight against? And Israel yearning for those false prophets to tell them ways in which they can live a religious life. Not much is different today, Jesus said, that the closer we get to the time of his appearing and return, there will be many false teachers. The same is true today. And kings. Can you tell me one faithful king? Now, there were some who were good, who were better than others, definitely. But it's interesting to read even there, we are given an expose of their grievous failure. But they were only shadows, and prophecies and promises of the true king, the true priest, and the true prophet, Jesus Christ. And everything that God sets before us, uh, we hear even from the New Testament, everything here was purposed to point to the one who would come to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Does anyone here know? the first words that Jesus spoke as he began his earthly ministry after he endured those temptations from Satan. What were the first words that he said? Mark 1, 15. The ta- or The first recorded words. I better put it in that context. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent believe the gospel. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? As he now takes up those three years of ministry that lead him to the cross, that lead him to the death, uh, that would uh, propitiate our sins, that would bring about his resurrection and his ascension into glory. He comes and he says to Israel, the kingdom of God is now at hand. That's what he's come for. Bring the kingdom of God in true righteousness. In in true holiness, in true godliness upon the earth. My friends, what you're reading here in chapter 12 is in so much a shadow of that glory of Jesus Christ. Because as he ascended into heaven... He was acclaimed by God in that glorious resurrection as the Lord and the Lord over all. And if you were to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul there, having uh, received this knowledge and truth from God, conveys this very point about Jesus Christ, the one who is risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, 25. Then comes the end. What is what are we waiting for? We are waiting for the end. Jesus has risen. He's coming again and when he returns there will come the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till he has put all uh, his enemies under his feet. And that last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's the glory we're waiting for. And you're going to hear more of this, but that's why we pray. What? Your kingdom come. Pray it. Your kingdom come. And again, Joshua 12 is a shadow of that greater heavenly, eternal work that the Lord Jesus has come to accomplish. The subduing of all his enemies and of all nations and of all peoples under his feet to hand the kingdom of God to the Father so that righteousness and truth may reign. And he is even now a conquering king. That's our first thing to to consider with this chapter, he is a conquering king. And, and when you think about that kingdom that is to come, it's, it's one kingdom, one holy nation that the Lord is coming to establish. You look at this chapter and, and you see a, a picture of that Christian worldview of Christ's kingship where he will bring all things under his feet to establish one nation, one kingdom. If you were to read this chapter in conjunction with Genesis 15, where that promise is given to Abraham of all the nations that would be destroyed, six are listed here in verse 8. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, The Jebusites, there's there's one nation that's missing. It's the Girgashites. But I agree with the commentators who suggest that those were uh, under King Sion and King Og of Bashan. That that's where the Girgashites were. The seven nations and 33 kingdoms within those nations were all struck down, were all defeated. That's what that word conquered, defeated means. They were struck down. And these nations and kingdoms were then given into Moses and Joshua's hand. For one nation, one kingdom. To replace them all. That's what Christ is coming to do. They had to be removed for the one nation of God's people. And for the one kingdom of God to come. And that was always God's intended purpose. To establish his people and his kingdom alone. And, that, and that's what we are looking forward to. Again, to, to look at other scripture to help us see this. Turn back to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15, when, when the Egyptian army was devastated. Here's another nation... That was conquered even before they came to the land of promise. And after they saw the Egyptian army perish at the hand of God in the Red Sea, uh, the song of Moses comes out in Exodus 15. And take up with me at verse 13 what God was doing here. Why did God destroy Egypt? The answer is he loved his people loved his people, and he was purposed to give them the kingdom. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed, verse 13. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed, the mighty men of Moab, Trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Isn't that what happened when Israel came in? Their hearts melted. Fear and dread will fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. And here it is. Grasp this. Why was God establishing this land for his people. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. It is God's purpose to establish his kingdom in the earth so that he may dwell is, that's what he wants. Isn't that marvelous? Doesn't that warm your heart? Doesn't that excite and encourage you? Even today, when you think about what kind of nation and what kind of continent of rule that we abide under, one day the Lord is returning and all of this will be gone. And what will be left is the nation and kingdom of God. And God, what does he say in Revelation 21? And God will dwell with them. He's a conquering king with that purpose in end. To dwell with you. To make the reality of Emmanuel, which came with Christ, something that we, would experience in its fullness. And what is happening here, again, in Joshua 12, is but a shadow of that to come. It's very interesting. And, and I personally do believe this, even though it doesn't necessarily come out in everything within these texts. But God has said in Revelation 7 that there will be a great multitude sealed by the Spirit of every nation, tribe, People and tongue standing before the throne and the lamb clothed with white robes where Revelation eleven fifteen, where the kingdoms of this world have become what the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. You know when you read of these seven nations and these 33 kingdoms in this chapter. One thing to always remember, and I'll say this point often throughout this, is that these were not a united people. If they were a united people, they'd have one king. (laughs) They don't. They fought and warred. God is the one who brought that division among the people so that the people of this world would never find unity amongst themselves, and it won't ever. I just told you about the many empires that are now gone as of the 20th century. They didn't get along. How long did England and France war? Germany, Prussia, all of these nations opposing one another. And that is part of God's work because it is only in Christ That oneness and unity can be had for all eternity. And that's what he's come to do. And to do that, he will rid this world of all that opposes his kingdom. He will do that. Do you believe that? Even today, Christ will rid this world of all that opposes his kingdom. That's again why we pray Thy kingdom come. I want to read to you uh, question 190 of our uh, larger catechism. Question 190 of our larger catechism. What do we pray for in that petition? Thy kingdom come. Sorry, it's 191. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to read this portion. In this petition, thy kingdom come. Acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan. We pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed and the gospel propagated throughout the world. And then it goes on and on. But that's preeminently what we are praying. Bring an end to the kingdom of sin. And of Satan, establish the truth of your gospel in the land. Again, when the Lord comes, what do we read in Revelation 21? When Jesus said, it is completed, all things he has made new. We read these words, Revelation 21, 8, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable. The murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which is the second death. These things will not be found in his kingdom. Thy kingdom come. My friends, I say that to you because when you read of these seven nations, when you read of all of these kingdoms that are listed here. I want you to understand those words of Revelation 21.8 describe these nations. Even Jerusalem. I, I mentioned this again and uh, keep mentioning so you can understand the decline into sin and the gravity of sin that filled this land. The immorality that encompassed them all. Remember Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem who met and visited Abraham after Abraham rescued the king of Sodom. There you go, showing mercy to a kingdom that would be destroyed in the very next chapter, or next few chapters. The decline of even that kingdom, where Melchizedek was a type of Christ, the king of Salem represented Moses, I mean, sorry, Abraham paid homage to him, to the glory of God. And the name of God was no more in this land. What happens when a land, a people, move further and further away from God? Revelation 21 8. What is more frightening is what happens. When the people of God move away from God. Sin is a reproach. And the Lord in his strength and might. Through Moses. Through Joshua. Has begun here to deal with the nations of the world. And he will complete this in his day of power and glory. And he will reign forever and ever. When you read this chapter, I think the great question that ought to be on your hearts is Jesus your king? Is he your king? Or do you belong to the kingdoms of this world? And the last thing we want to see here, it's the second point, and that is he's not just a conquering king, he's a gracious king. Twice it is stated that Moses and Joshua, in verse 6 and verse 7, They gave Israel the land as a possession. They gave Israel this land for the formation of a kingdom. And again, it is another shadow when you read this. You're looking ahead to even the words of Jesus in Luke 12, 32, where he says to us, to his people, to his church, do not fear little flock. For it is, listen to this, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you what? To give you the kingdom. That's what the Father is all about doing within His Son. Not just to save and redeem you, but as that song of Moses says, the people whom you have purchased with the firstborn of Israel, you are now giving them an inheritance where you reign forever and ever. And Jesus says, my dear church, my little flock, don't fear. Can can you grasp hold of that today when we look at our governments, when we look at the wretchedness of society, when we see a land that is more concerned about what gender people want. They they need to be pitied. They need to be brought the gospel. We, We ought not to hate them. They're living out their paganism. And when we see that everything is being put in place to exalt that and to put down the glory of God, it's hard not to fear, isn't it? <laughs> but even in this, that truth is for us. Your Father, His good pleasure is to give you the kingdom. And that, my friends, was the motivation for Christ to defeat these 33 kings. His motivation to conquer these kingdoms did not lay in some cruel, barbaric vengeance, which is what the world, when they read Joshua and and they see all that goes on, you'll hear the unbelieving uh, 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 historians and whatnot talk about how cruel, how barbaric a God this must be to bring about such devastation on these kingdoms. Well, these kingdoms themselves were barbaric, were gravely immoral. What God did over 450 years earlier in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and all those other cities of that plain area that are now encompassed and in, in, in called uh, the Dead Sea area was but a token of his judgment against the gravity of the kingdom of sin and Satan. And he was just in doing it. But the motivation for Christ to defeat these kingdoms also laid in that steadfast covenant love that God had for his people. God's faithfulness to a people who struggled to be faithful to him. It's interesting that the, the, the names uh, of the places and uh, kings here in chapter 12 are mentioned in two psalms. I want you to turn there as we close this out to Psalm 135. Psalm 135 and Psalm 136. These two psalms tell us why did God in Christ conquer these kingdoms and nations? And the answer is because of his steadfast love for his people, his Hesed love, his mercy and faithfulness to his people. Look at Psalm 135 verses 1 to 4 and we'll look through a number of verses here and I'll just read them quickly there. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, O you servants of the Lord. What are we going to praise him for? For his conquering vengeance against the nation. For the sake of his love for his people. Praise him for that? Yes. We praise God for his justice. You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praise to him, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel for His special treasure. Where have you heard that phrase? Chosen Jacob, his special treasure. Jacob I have loved. Always comes back to that, doesn't it? His special treasure. First Peter two nine. You are a chosen generation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, his own. Special treasure. And then you go on in this psalm to verse 8. He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, man and beast. He sent signs and wonders in the midst of you. O Egypt, upon Pharaoh, he defeated many nations, slew mighty kings, Sihon, king of Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, an inheritance to Israel, his Jacob, whom I have loved, my special treasure. He's the God who is for us, the God who is with us. Bless the Lord as it ends. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord God out of Zion, out of his church. Bless him. Because this is the work he is doing. In love for his people. And you go to Psalm 136, and that constant refrain, we have it here translated in the New King James, for his mercy endures forever. Some have his steadfast love, some translations. That word, kasad, or hasad, it means a variety of things, but it's speaking about the fullness of the grace and love God has for his people. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He is good. What is his goodness described as when you get down to verse 16? Give thanks to the Lord for he is good to him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings, to him who slew famous kings, Seon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, to give their land as a heritage, as a heritage to his servant because his mercy endures That's why he did this. And that's what keeps us from being arrogant, proud, obnoxious, hateful against the nations of the world. That's what keeps us from having an excuse to show anger against those who are promoting godlessness in that sense where we want to take vengeance upon them. Because, my friends, who of us deserve this kind of mercy from God? Which of you deserve even an ounce of God's cassette, steadfast love? We know the answer. None of us. It's in mercy that God has dealt with us, even as in judgment he's dealt with these nations. In mercy, what God was doing under Moses, under Joshua, in chapter 12, was ridding the land of all that opposed his kingdom to give his people a home that would be built upon truth and righteousness. Well, they squandered it. We usually squander all things given to us from God. But thankfully we have a king who didn't. (laughs) Thankfully we abide in the kingship of Christ. Thankfully we have one who is over us in all things before God. Who did not squander anything or fall into any measure of sin. Who stands for us. Who himself willingly endured the scorn, the shame, the mockery, the contempt. Of many nations in his earthly ministry and particularly as he was being led to the cross. He was acclaimed by the Roman soldiers, by Pilate, by Herod, by Satan as the king, as the king of the Jews. And they took out their malice, their rage and anger against him in crucifying him. But our king willingly endured all of that order to accomplish our redemption and to bring forth the success of that redemption to be applied to everyone who had been given to him. To that end where one day every single knee is going to bow and confess that Jesus is one. Lord. And Thankfully if you Believe in Jesus now. Thankfully, you have this side of eternity bowed the knee and confessed that he is Lord. My friends, what is waiting for you is that mercy of God in bringing you into the fullness of his kingdom. It's undeserved, but that is God's mercy. It wouldn't be grace if we deserved it. So this is what this is all about. God establishing his kingdom for his people. I ask you again. Are you under the lordship of Christ? Have you acclaimed Jesus as your king? Are you in his kingdom? Come to him. He is ready, able, and willing to receive you. Call upon his name. You will be saved. Let us